Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today. Take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey guys, this is episode 150 of Reclaiming the Faith. And before I get into the show notes, I just want to say thank you to all of you who have been listeners. Thank you so much for your prayers and support of me and my family. Please don't stop. Please keep them coming. Well, in today's episode, my wife and I were in our Philippians Bible study, and we look at verses 19 through 30, where Paul highlights two of his fellow workers, co-workers in the gospel, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And by doing so, he shows us some incredible qualities of ambassadors of the kingdom of God. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Please continue praying for me as I'm writing uh, my third book. I'm almost done with chapter eight, and then I'll just have an epilogue. So be in prayer for that, thinking about cover art. Uh, Then I'm going to be working on audio versions of the chapters. So hopefully it will be done sometime in the summer. And uh, yeah, pray it's a blessing to y'all. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, and you can check out what we do on the Omega Frequency podcast and on our Omega Frequency and Omega Frequency Live YouTube and Rumble channels, so please go check that out. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 150. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my fellow brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not, on, not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. All right. So 
as I said earlier, we're going to be looking at 10, 10 characteristics of faithful Christians in this passage. And I said it'd be exemplified mostly by uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, a little bit by Paul, but obviously most, most uh, purely by the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember how Paul starts uh, this chapter? He tells the Philippians to... Um, hey, AJ. Hey, AJ. Glad you join us. Yeah, man. So uh, he tells the Philippians to to not look out for their in, their own interests, but for the interests of others, and to have the same attitude in themselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who you know, being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but rather he emptied himself, uh, taking the form of a servant, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Now, if you were reading that or hearing that rather uh, as a Philippian believer there for the first time, it'd be like, that's, that's, mouth, that's a lot. And you want me to have that same mindset? You want me to have that same humility? You want me to have that same attitude? You want me to have that same level of obedience? And then Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? Because it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Be thinking that and, and maybe, you know, this is just speculation, obviously, but it's also from uh, being in vocational ministry for a really long time, you see people that are like, well, that's easy for you to say, Jesus, you know, you're a God. Or that's easy for you to say, Paul, you're like this super apostle guy. And so it's almost as if Paul uh, anticipates those kind of, that kind of pushback. And so what he does very uh, ingeniously is he gives them two examples of people like them. Mm not super apostles, but just faithful servants of Christ that can maybe help put more meat on the bone for them. Uh, I know that's kind of a weird analogy, but uh, can kind of help make it more plain, um, make it a little bit more accessible, this teaching to show them, no, it's not just Jesus that models these characteristics. It's not just me, Paul, who's following Christ so hard. No, look, there, there's so many others. Look at these, look at these two guys. All right, so number one, the first characteristic of a faithful Christian is that they're a kindred spirit of the apostles. They're like-minded, all right? So here's verse 19. But I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, all right? So a kindred spirit of the apostle, this idea of kindred spirit means of uh, equivalent soul, properly um, having a similar identity, similar values, being like-minded, equally motivated. It's the only place in the New Testament where this word occurs and uh, refers to believers in a situation with the same values and out outlook because each is directed by God's in-working of faith. So I want to show again and we did this, I believe, in like the first, um, the first Philippians Bible study, because it's Paul and Timothy who are writing this letter to the Philippians. 
And so we did a little bit of a study on how Paul and Timothy got together. All right. Now, Timothy, as you read about in Acts chapter 16, he lived in Lystra. Paul visited Lystra in Acts chapter 14, and he was not treated very kindly there. At first, people were trying to worship uh, him and Barnabas as if they were Zeus and Mercury. Uh, and then some Jews came, that unbelieving Jews came in and started a riot basically against Paul and, uh, Paul and Timothy, dragged them out of the city, uh, dragged Paul out of the, they didn't start a riot against Paul and Timothy, against Paul and Barnabas. They, they dragged Paul out of the city and they stoned him, all right? But he didn't stay there, all right? So I want to show a little bit of this. This is from Acts 14, starting in verse 19. I apologize for the dyslexia stuff. So Acts 14, 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered into the city. So he goes back into Lystra after they just stoned him to death, basically. Mm. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they came back again to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So get that. He goes into Lystra. He gets stoned. He doesn't flee. He goes back into the city. All right. Then he goes on more missionary travels and he comes back again to Lystra. He strengthens the souls of the disciples. He encourages them like, look, if we're going to get into the kingdom of God, you're going to have to go through some really rough stuff for the kingdom. All right. Now, in Acts 16, you have Paul coming back to Lystra again. This is his fourth time entering the city. And this is what happens. Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Now, Paul had made quite an impression on Timothy. He had to. And this is the founder of the church at Lystra. And this is a guy who got stoned for the gospel, stoned to death. And he comes back after being either resurrected or resuscitated or something comes back into the city, comes back again saying, guys, we're going to have to go through hardship for the kingdom of God. This makes a big impression on Timothy. And he's a disciple now. He's well thought of by everyone. He's a young man, but well thought of by everyone. And look at what happens next. Verse 3. Paul wanted this man to go with him. He wants to take Timothy along. And so he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. 
for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul's like, I've got so many people that are like legit. I know so many legit Christians, but this guy, this guy is very like-minded as me because for the sake of others, putting others' interests above his own, Timothy, a grown man, though he's a young man, he's a grown man, gets circumcised to help advance the gospel. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to hear these things and I'm like, why, why did it matter? You know, like I, I get why it does culturally, but like in our context in America and now it's like that kind of thing doesn't, doesn't matter anymore to us, but it's almost in a way, and I know this is very different, but it's kind of like why being a martyr advances the gospel because it's like, why would somebody be willing to do this? Like something must really be special about this if they're willing to go get circumcised as an adult in order to prove how serious they are about this. And I've never never known an adult to do that, but I've seen it with babies and it doesn't look like fun. So, um, but yeah, it, it must have been a big testimony because why else would he do it? Mm. All right, so that's number one. Let's go to number two. All right. Number two, have genuine concern for the welfare of others. So a faithful Christian will have genuine concern for the welfare of others. Mm. And so, let me just pause real quick. You're going to see a lot of these kind of overlap, and that's okay. But there'll be like little nuances between them. So like the first one is like-minded to the, to the apostles. And that kind of blends in because the apostles have genuine concern for the welfare of others. All right. This point is not going to take a really, really long time. Again, I'll just read these two verses. But I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned your welfare. And you remember Paul wrote earlier in Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Sorry, my nose itched. Um, I just wrote jailer there. You know, Paul demonstrated this characteristic. Uh, he modeled this for the Philippians when he could have gotten out of prison, right? After being uh, beaten with rods with Silas there in Philippi, he's thrown in there in the stocks. The earthquake happens while they're praying and singing. And he could have just fled, but he stayed. The jailer's going to kill himself. It would seem like justice, right? Like vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Let that jailer kill himself for putting you in the stocks. No, that's not what Paul's about, mm -hmm. right? Just like Jesus had mercy on him, he wants mercy on the jailer. He's putting the jailer's needs above his own. His own. Don't kill yourself. He leads the jailer to receive Jesus as Lord. And then the jailer puts Paul's interests above his, right? He takes 
Paul and Silas to his house. And he could have gotten in some serious trouble for that letting a prisoner out. You know, that's not a good thing to do. But he takes Paul and Silas back to his house, cleans their wounds. Paul and Silas preach the gospel to uh, the soldier's family. And the family receives the Lord as well. Pretty awesome stuff. All right. So number three, a faithful Christian will seek the interests of Christ Jesus. All right. Now, we're going to do this, hit this one by kind of looking at the opposite. Paul shows us the, the real by um, highlighting the fake, in a sense. Remember, Paul says, I have no one like Timothy, right? Who puts others' um, needs above his own. And then he says this, for they all, they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Like everybody's selfish out there. Everybody's self-centered. Everybody's selfish. I mean, it's, it's something that you see pretty early in children, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, one of the first words that kids learn is mine. Mine. Another one would be no. Yeah. You know, you see covetousness pretty early in kids, especially if they have an older brother. Um, you see that or sister. a younger. Yeah, or sister. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Yeah, you see that just self-centered drive. Mm -hmm. And yet he's saying, no, Timothy, man, he's about seeking the interest of Christ Jesus. I want to highlight a story from the Gospels. This is in Mark chapter 10. Now he's, I believe this is the, uh, the third time that he's going to talk about uh, dying. He starts that in nine and then you have it, a, you have it three times between nine and 10, uh, Mark nine and 10 of Jesus saying he's going to suffer and die. And it's, uh, it's really interesting what happens around each of those, those times. Here's the third one. I, I believe this is the third one. But uh, let me put this on the screen. So this is coming toward the end of Jesus's ministry. He's maybe got a couple of months um, before his death, just a few months. A couple in Texas is like a few. <laughs> I guess it's kind of like, oh, I almost made a Mormon joke. I shouldn't do that. All right. Um, gosh, I apologize. And for the comment that you said. Yeah. All right, so yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't good. Mark 10, 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him saying, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the hands of the chief priests and the scribes they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So Jesus, let me pause there real quick, has just again said to his disciples, I'm about to get brutally tortured and murdered. All right. I'm about to get brutally tortured and murdered by the people who claim to be like the holiest people in the world. 
And um, how do James and John respond to that? Classic James and John. Classic. <laughs> no, I mean, they're just like us, right? Yeah. So 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Guys, I'm about to be murdered and killed. Hey, do whatever we say, Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus very graciously says, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> what is it? You know, at least, at least to their credit, you know, they didn't come to Jesus and be like, you are the best teacher ever. We love you so much. We're so thankful, you know, because it's kind of like what kids do, yeah. right? When and you're like, what do you want? Yeah. No, to their credit, they just go, we want you to give us whatever we say. <laughs> right? It's pretty interesting. So Jesus, what do you want me to do for you, man? And they say, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. So they're not really understanding what Jesus has just been saying. Um, and they're like, we want to rule over all the heathen. Thinking of the Son of Man from Daniel ruling over all the nations, right? From Daniel 7. Like, we want to rule with you. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? They don't realize that he's talking about getting tortured and killed. They said to him, yep. And Jesus says, look, the cup that I drink, you're going to drink. And you're going to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. He's like, you guys are going to get martyred too. 40, but to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it's for those whom it has been prepared, most likely speaking of the two criminals, insurrectionists on the crosses beside him. Hearing this, the 10 then began to feel indignant with James and John. So the 10 are arguing, right? Kind of like they do at the Last Supper when they're, when Jesus is telling them again, again, around the Last Supper, at the Last Supper table, He's like, they're, they're about to kill me, y'all. And then they start arguing about which one is the greatest. You know, you see that in Luke. Um, so they're indignant with James and John, calling them to himself. Jesus says to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way with you or among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the interest of Christ Jesus is redeeming the world, redeeming as many people as possible, bringing as many people as possible into the family of God. And so the way we do that is by serving, not by being served, right? That's what Christ Jesus is about. He's not about um, sending fire down from heaven to consume the Samaritans. That's not what, what our mission is right now. 
We've got to keep in, in our eyes the faithful, faithful life of Christ. Keep that in our mindset. And we're not greater than our master. No servant is. And so if he washes feet, we need to do that too. So with that kind of thing in mind, number four is serving with others to further the gospel. Serving with others to further the gospel. All right, so Philippians 2.22, but you know of Timothy's proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. He served with me. I just wanted to highlight that aspect of service, that it's one thing to serve on your own and just, you know, be like a, a, a legitimate Christian that's serving the Lord but you just do it kind of in isolation because people hurt people, you know? People are messy. Friendships are messy. Church relationships are messy. And it can be tempting to try to just do this all on our own. But if we're going to be faithful, we can't neglect the body of Christ. We have to do good to all people, especially to those in the body. And they need you and you need them. I need them, and they need me. And so we need to serve with one another. I just want to highlight a passage from Romans 12. And I know that's hard to do. Uh, it can be harder to do in like quarantine times or whatever, but we can figure out different ways to do that. Um, uh, whether it's tag teaming on a Zoom or something like that, like we can figure out, we can be creative. We have the Holy Spirit in us that can help us be creative in serving with one another. Here we go. For though the grace given to me, for through the, I need to, maybe you should read these. Okay. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, as one body in Christ and, individual, and individually members of one another, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching, or he, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, and he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. That Romans passage, uh, Romans 12 passage is, is just so awesome. It's got some parallels to um, 1 Corinthians 12, if you ever want to check that out. And one of the things that it talks about, like in, in 1 Corinthians 12, is how the eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. If one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. If one member of the body rejoices, they all rejoice. The body's interconnected. Like our dog 
um, hurt his paw uh, earlier. And it's like, he's all out of whack. He can't do what he wants to do. You know, they just throw, threw him completely off. This one little thing. Well, adding the cone of shame Yeah, didn't now help. he has like a cone of shame. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so one of the things it says here in Romans 12 in verse 10 is that we need to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. If we're devoted to each other, um, there's got to be some contact. Um, and maybe that's Zoom. I don't know, but we got to find a way to serve one another and serve with one another. You don't see Jesus sending apostles out alone. You see them in pairs. We got to serve with one another. What's up? Kathy says puppy parable. Yeah, it's going to come and out. It always comes back to the dogs. Yeah. They're in here with us again tonight too. Yeah. Um, Amos just moved. It's like, oh, you talking about me? Is that uh, what he's like? Philip? Yeah. All right. So <laughs> number five, we need to work hard for Christ. This isn't like Protestant work ethic stuff. It's not just talking about working hard because, you know, that shows the, the image of God in you. That's not what we're talking about here. He says we need to work hard for Christ, a fellow worker for Christ. Now, we're about to get into Epaphroditus. So let me read this passage, and then I'll talk a little bit about, uh, about him. See you, Tiffany. Thanks for hanging out. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, so here we go. We're now chapter 2, verse 23. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, Timothy, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will be coming to you shortly, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker. All right. Um, so Paul is in Rome. Timothy's there with him in Rome. Of course, they're writing the letter together. Paul's in like house arrest. He's kind of quarantined there. He doesn't know if he's going to die or be released. He believes he's going to be released. But, and so he hopes to come there to Philippi again soon. But um, while he's there, while he was there in Rome, the Philippians sent a gift, a financial gift by way of Epaphroditus to Paul. And one of the things you're going to see is that along the way, basically, he got really, really sick, but he stayed on mission and he got to Rome and got the gift to Paul, though it almost cost him his life. And now he's about to come back to Philippi and he does. Epaphroditus is the carrier of the letter to Philippi. To the Church of Philippi. So this guy is a, um, he's a pretty stand-up dude. Obviously, somebody that Paul trusts immensely to be carrying this apostolic letter. Um, he's got a ton of respect for Epaphroditus. So one of the first, the first thing he says is a brother. Um, but I wanted to highlight this like characteristic of being a fellow worker. Uh, I want to highlight a few things that Paul writes about work that are not often highlighted uh, in certain crowds. Um, certain crowds um, kind of downplay work uh, and because um, we're not saved by works. 
some of the like the hyper grace crowds uh, downplay work, but Paul is about hard work. He is about labor for the Lord, for the Lord, laboring hard. So I'm going to read a few passages here. Remember Philippians 1, 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which one to choose. So Paul there is saying, look, if, um, if I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's Christ. But if I live, I, if I continue living, man, this is going to be fruitful labor. This work that I'm putting in is going to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. Stephanie, you want to read this Colossians 1, 28 and 29 passage? Sure. All right. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. It's a powerful passage. He is trying to not just uh, have people receive Christ, but he wants to present every person complete in Christ. Like he wants them to be able to uh, work out their salvation because God is working in them. He wants them to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, as Peter would say. He wants them to attain maturity, full stature of Christ, as he writes about in Ephesians chapter four. And he's like, that's why I labor. And I labor with the mighty power of God that's working in me. Paul's a worker. Check out how he ends Romans 6, the, the, the letter of Romans. This is just a, a, a pretty impressive, like, are you getting the hint, uh, Romans? And he likes the Roman church. It's just, um, look at all of these. As he's saying his, his goodbye, get into it. Here we go. He says, greet Prisca and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Verse six, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Verse nine, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Verse 12, greet uh, Trufinea and Trufasa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Think there's a theme in, in Paul's goodbyes? Yeah. You know, of course, he's been coming against, like, we're not saved by works kind of idea, but he's like, and yet, you better be a worker if you're in Christ. If you're for real, if you're a faithful Christian, you're going to work hard for the Lord. Last passage I want to highlight is from 1 Corinthians 3, 6 uh, through 15. Interesting passage about work for the Lord. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So talking about the church at Corinth. Um. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, 
but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, obviously for the kingdom of God. For we are God's fellow workers. God is a worker and we're God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds, how you work, how you build is important. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. How we work is very important, and I'm just kind of reminded of Galatians chapter 5, I believe, it's verse 6, where Paul says, says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So in the end, the work that you do is that's like gold, silver, precious stones, your faith expressing itself, manifesting itself through these acts of love. Yeah, no, I think that that's how we, I think that makes so much sense. And that's how we demonstrate our faith um, through our actions and what we truly believe and so folks that would say that your works don't matter, I feel like they're, I don't know how they're reading the same Bible that I am. I mean, your faith or your works aren't what save you, but they, they're they a manifestation of true faith. They're the outworking of, you know, true faith. All right, number six, the sixth quality of a faithful Christian from Philippians 19 through 30 is to be a soldier for Christ. A faithful Christian is going to be a soldier for Christ. All right? So let me uh, let me put this verse up there. Keep an eye on the time, man. You're yeah, I got to hurry, BDK, right? <laughs> but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, it's number five, and fellow soldier is number six. All right. Epaphroditus is a soldier, and that's what we got to be too. All right, let me go to 2 Timothy 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to these faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may be able to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Very important. If you're a soldier, you got to be laser focused on the commands of your, uh, of your officer. Mm-hmm. And uh, our general, our king is Christ Jesus, who is the embodiment of a soldier for the Lord. He is the angel of the Lord, um, the leader of the armies of of heaven. And um, 
He doesn't fight from behind. You know, he was riding out in front on the white horse uh, at the end of time when he returns. And we're to serve as soldiers for Christ too. Now, remember Ephesians 6 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the uh, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly in the heavenly places, right? So we don't take up weapons, carnal weapons to fight. We take up spiritual weapons like the sword of the spirit. You remember 2 Corinthians 10 says that we walk in the flesh. We do not war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of forces. Uh, I want to read y'all an excerpt from Origins, uh, his his uh, early Christian document was called Origin Against Celsus. Now, Celsus was a, a Jewish, um, no, yeah, yeah, he was a Jewish man uh, who lived long before Origen that was writing arguments against the Christians. And one of the things he uh, says against the Christians is that like he's rebuking them basically for not taking part in uh, public office. He's rebuking them for not being a part of the military. And so it's interesting how Origen uh, uh, fights against that argument. This is what he says. I'll put it up here for you all. In the next place, Celsus urges us to help the king with all our might and to labor with him in the maintenance of justice and to fight for him if he requires it and to fight under him or to lead an army along with him. To this, our answer is that we do, when occasion requires, give help. We help kings and that, so to say, a divine help. We give him a divine help by putting on the whole armor of God. And this we do in obedience to the injunction of the apostle. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority. And the more uh, anyone excels in piety, the more help does he render to kings, even more than is given by soldiers, who go forth to fight and slay as many of the enemy as they can. And uh, hold on one second, I'll pause. So he's saying, look, um, we're called to pray for kings and we do that. And in fact, we do more good for kings than their soldiers do. We fight better than soldiers do. We're better soldiers than the soldiers. Mm. So watch how he gets into this. And to those enemies of our faith who require us to bear arms for the commonwealth and to slay men, we can reply, do not those who are priests at certain shrines and those who attend certain gods, attend on certain gods as you account them, keep their hands free from blood that they may with hands unstained and free from human blood offer the appointed sacrifices to your gods. And even when war is upon you, you never enlist the priests in any army. If that then is a laudable custom, how much more so that while others are engaged in battle, these two should engage as the priests and ministers of God, keeping their hands pure and wrestling in prayers to God on behalf of those who are fighting in a righteous cause and for the king who reigns righteously, that whatever is opposed to those who act righteously may be destroyed." 
And as we, by our prayers, vanquish all demons who stir up war and lead to the violation of oaths and disturb the peace, we in this way are much more helpful to the kings than those who go into the field to fight for them. And we do take our part in public affairs when along with righteous prayers, we join self-denying exercises and meditations which teach us to despise pleasures and not to be led away by them. And none fight better for the king than we do. We do not indeed fight under him, although he require it, but we fight on his behalf, forming a special army, an army of piety by offering our prayers to God. It's really, it's really powerful to see the the belief that Origen, this Christian in the middle of the third century has in the power of prayer. He's like, our prayers destroy, they vanquish, they defeat the demons that are stirring up war to begin with. So he's like, we don't, if we're chopping down a tree, we don't just spend time plucking leaves, we go after the roots. And he's like, you can't go after the roots of these problems with weapons, with carnal weapons. That's not going to stop the problem. The only way you change someone from being warlike to peaceful is by changing his heart, right? And that's what they go after, just like Justin Martyr talks about in, um, in his first apology. So it's just really good stuff. What's on your mind? No, I was just thinking about how, yeah, just imagining the kind of people that we're, we're called to be and being better soldiers and being better, um, yeah, we, I don't know, I'm, I'm struggling for my words, but like, you know, our, we should be the best kind of citizens. We should be the best, um, but not for the worldly reasons, but for the reasons that glorify God and um, and that we're help we're, we're bringing peace, we're bringing justice, we're bringing kindness, we're bringing all of those things. It's it's not what the world thinks it needs, but it is what the world needs. Yeah, absolutely. As BDK says the radical revolution of peace. Mm. Yeah, we're not pacifists, right? We fight. We just fight different, and we fight more effectively. Mm-hmm. Tina says, go after the puppet masters, yeah. uh, not merely the puppets. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. you say we're not pacifists. I mean, I guess because pacifist, pacifism conjures up this idea of kind of sitting back. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not just not warring. It's it's kind of more like, I don't know, almost feels like apathy where this is a, an extreme opposition to the war in fact, to the point where we're actively fighting against it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, so number seven. We might make it. We might. Number seven, be a messenger for Christ. Be a messenger for Christ. Verse 25 again, but I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger. 
All right. Now, um, in one sense, he was the messenger. Like he was bringing like a literal messenger. He was bringing uh, the offering from the Philippians to Paul. And he's bringing the letter of Philippians to the Philippians, the letter from Paul to the Philippians to the Philippians. So in that sense, he is a messenger. But that word is only used like two or three times, maybe four in the New Testament to actually mean messenger where the vast majority, like just about like 90% of the time, it's used as something else. So let's look at that. The word messenger is apostolos. What does that sound like? Apostle. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. A messenger, one sent on a mission, an apostle, a messenger, an envoy, a delegate, one commissioned by another to represent him in some way, especially a man sent out by Christ Jesus himself to preach the gospel, an apostle. You have been sent out on a mission, right? Go into all the world, right? Make disciples of all nations. You are on a mission, and that mission is basically to be like a ambassador, an ambassador for Christ. If you're an ambassador from one kingdom to the next, to the other, like if you're an ambassador of the United States to Mexico, your job is to live in Mexico while being a citizen of the United States and demonstrate to Mexico what the United States is like. You're supposed to represent it. You represent it in the way you talk, the way you spend your money, the way you live, the way you treat people. You are a walking representation of America to Mexico. Similarly, Jesus is sending you out to represent the kingdom of God to the world. Just like uh, Epaphroditus was sent out to represent the Philippians to Paul, Paul's sending uh, Epaphroditus to the Philippians to represent Paul, right? And so it's this idea of apostle. Now, these are not like the 12 who have the ability to write scripture. And though I believe, if we want to get into it, that that gifting is still around this like church planting, go to the places where it's um, not safe to be a Christian and plant churches, like that kind of a heart um, is, is an apostolic drive. I, I really believe that. Um, but those people do not have the authority to, to, write to write scripture or to act as like little vicars of Christ around the world at all. But that gifting still remains, I believe, according to uh, Ephesians 4, just like prophet and teacher and pastor, that kind of stuff, and evangelist, fivefold ministry. But we're all called to have that same, uh, to, to represent in that kind of a way, as little apostles in a sense, as little sent ones, as little messengers to our community, um, to our friends, our family, to the enemies, as AJ was talking about, right? To represent Christ. I'm going to keep on moving. It's good. It's good that I'm moving. Well, <laughs> yeah, it is. It. We got 25 minutes. Yeah. We got to include a prayer in there, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say? No, no, that's it. Nothing. Just, okay. I was just making a joke. All right. Um, 
internet issues. I hope that's not on my end. If it's on our end, let it, let me know. What did it say? That she said the war is real. Tina said the war is real. Mm-hmm. Uh, prayed to see beyond the veil. Uh, internet issues. So oh. I hope that's not on us. Okay. All right. Um, number eight, be a minister for Christ. Be a minister for Christ. So remember, he's like a fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and now a minister. Think of all these things that Paul is saying about Epaphroditus. It's pretty awesome. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. All right. That word, uh, leturgos, uh, leturgos, I believe that's it. That sounds like liturgy, Mm -hmm. right? It's uh, belonging to the people properly an official servant who works for the good of the community. And the New Testament and in the Septuagint, this word is especially used for priestly service given to God, impacting all who witness it. Awesome. A faithful Christian is going to act as a minister. It doesn't mean you're getting paid to do ministry, but you are going to act as a minister. You have a ministry. And we're called to minister to the needs of others. But in order to faithfully minister to the needs of others, we first have to learn how to minister to the Lord. Um, that's, a, that's a a truth that I first heard from Henry Blackaby uh, in his book, Called to Be God's Prophet, where he's writing about uh, Samuel. It's a great, great book. I, would, I definitely recommend it uh, to y'all, Henry Blackaby's uh, called to be God's prophet about Samuel. It's fantastic. And one of the points that he makes is that the, one of the reasons why Samuel's, like none of his words ever fell to the ground, as it talks about, is because he learned first how to minister to the Lord before he ministered to people. Mm-hmm. Just want to highlight that uh, real quick. This is First uh, Samuel chapter 3. It says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. It happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and Samuel said, here here I am. Then he ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and laid down again. The Lord called again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But Eli answered, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for a third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. And it shall be if he calls you that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. 
Now, you remember, it says first, and Samuel was ministering to the Lord. And it talks about Eli. And if you'd read the previous chapters in Samuel, you'd know that Eli's sons were terrible dudes. Mm. They were terrible priests that are having affairs with women. They are stealing food, basically. They are really terrible priests. And so the word that comes to Samuel, when Samuel says, here I am, your servant's listening, that third time or that fourth time, God comes to Samuel and says, you need to go tell Eli that his time is over being priests and his lineage is going to die out. That's pretty much what God tells him, just real plain, real succinct. And you got to imagine as a boy, Samuel, young, young boy, and he's called to deliver that message to the guy that's taken him into his home, that's taking care of him every day. He's basically living like Samuel's father. He's acting like Samuel's dad. And Samuel's first job from the Lord is to tell his surrogate dad, in a sense, you're going to die and all your sons are going to die. Your line is over. Mm. I, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I have the backbone to do that. I just had a thought that like, and he's called to be a prophet and delivering harsh words are the job of a prophet. And so he's, God's showing him from the beginning that you can do this with my strength. And um, yeah, but man, I can't imagine, I can't imagine doing that as an adult let alone as a kid that, you know, looks up to this person. They're like, basically your hero. Yeah. Did you see the questions? Yeah, okay. yeah, this is great. Lanisha says, how do I minister to the Lord? What does that mean? BRC says, that's my question too. Yeah, one of the, one of the things I could tell you to like help put, put a handle on that, think about um, Acts chapter six, when you've got these, um, these Jewish women and Hellenistic women, uh, widows that are like not getting their needs met. And so the apostles are like, look, we gotta, we've got to get together some guys that are going to be servants, deacons to help meet these needs, to make sure these needs take place. And so they appoint these seven deacons um, to make sure that these widows' needs are getting met. And so to do that, I mean, you got to be following up. You got to be asking them, how are you doing? What's going on with you? What can we do for you to help you out today? That's a good picture of ministering of being a, think about it, like the word deacon uh, kind of has the idea of a, a, a waiter in a sense. What can I do for you? How can I serve you today? Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's like a really core uh, idea of ministering. And again, if, you're, if you remember the definition that we read from uh, Strong's Concordance out of Bible Hub, it, it's most often in the New Testament and in the Septuagint, if I'm remembering correctly what it said, yeah, um, the root has an idea of being a priest. So remember, a priest's job is to represent uh, God to the people and represent the people to God. And so that's another uh, way that you can think about ministering, right? Now, just think about God is, or Samuel was supposed to represent God to Eli, and he's like re supposed to represent the people to God. This is what's going on with the people, God. 
You see that interaction too, not just in Samuel's life. You see it really well in the life of Moses, right? Representing God to the people and then representing the people to God. It's uh, If you do a study of the life of Moses uh, during those 40 years, um, you get a pretty good idea of what it means to be a minister. All right, number 10, hold faithful servants of Christ in high regard. Hold faithful servants of Christ in high regard. All right, let's look at this. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and faithful worker, fellow soldier, who is your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing to see you all and he was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him also, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and be less concerned. You may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. So receive him in the Lord and hold men like him in high regard. So when I was thinking about this, and I don't want to belabor this point too much, but I was thinking about growing up in, um, you know, it's just standard Southern Baptist church, like really conservative Southern Baptist church. Um, and uh, I don't remember the church as a whole talking about missionaries very much, except for this like month of missions where there would be like an insert in the bulletin about one of the missionaries um, that the church supported and an opportunity to give to the Lottie Moon Foundation. Um, and that was about it for the month of missions. Now they talked about it in uh, Sunday school a little bit more, um, but not in the big services, not in big church. Mm -hmm. um, in big church, we did not really talk about missionaries, though there was a lot of emphasis placed on actual soldiers or presidents or different um, soldiers for, um, for the cause of America. And 4th of July, it was big time, big time, red, white, and blue, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, all that kind of stuff. Those were the people that our church held in high regard. Those were the kind of people that we honored, that the pastor made sure that we honored. And not those who were risking their lives for the kingdom. You know, I was just thinking, I was talking with Stephanie about this. And we we're thinking about people that should be honored in uh, churches. People like um, Eric Liddell, people like Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott, um, Hudson Taylor, Amy Carmichael. And Stephanie, you brought up someone. I'd, I'd love for you to share a little bit of her story. I wish you would um, Pollinger, Jackie Pollinger. Yeah, Jackie Pollinger. So I guess it was probably in the 60s um, that she felt called to do mission work. And I believe she was a single woman and um, applied for different mission organizations and was rejected. Basically, like they said, they couldn't support her um, at that time. But she felt like God's calling me to do missions. Um, she talked to a pastor who basically said like, you know, she felt like, like she should go to somewhere in Asia. And he said, okay, buy a boat ticket for as far as you can go and just pray that God tells you when to get off. 
which is a crazy thought. Like, I think she was pretty young. And just just go toward Asia and see where you get, you, where God tells you to get off. And apparently she left with, uh, or she bought a ticket as far as she could go. So she used up almost all of her money to do that. So she traveled, 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 and then um, feels like God tells her to get off. And I can't even remember now. Would you remember what city it was? Well, it was Hong Kong. It was, oh, okay. It was in Hong Kong. And um, this is like a terrible area, but she's like, God's telling me to get off. So she gets off and she has like $10 on her and doesn't know a person there at all. The people were barely going to let her in the city, but somehow she found out that there was a a, uh, a guard or something that was her mom's godson that she didn't know anything. About. It was a really crazy story, but she ends up going and working with these children in this area that's, you know, like a big um, hotspot for opium use and, um, and a lot of gang activity. And it's just a crazy story that, you know, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty inspiring story as a Christian. And I, that, you guys should actually read about it. My my telling of the story is oh, you did a lot less than um, than her book. I think it's called Chasing the Dragon, but um, it's it's incredible and it's really inspiring. And when you hear these stories of faith, like it challenges you to to do more yourself or to to trust that God is going to take care of you. Um, and so, anyway, it was just. Uh, a really incredible story. And I think that those kind of things need to be highlighted in the church and they're just not really. I mean, I, I was in a Southern Baptist church and there was Girls in Action, GAs, if anybody knows what that is here, GAs. We did a lot of talk about missions. Um, so actually I did hear a decent amount growing up, but um, it wasn't really thought that you could ever go, especially not if you weren't married, um, like just that was sort of the attitude you went with your spouse a lot of times. Um, but God doesn't call everybody to get married. Just, you know, that there's plenty of ministers who aren't. Um, so yeah, I think that's the kind of thing we need to hear more of and hear that God did amazing things through these people who took these crazy risky steps. And like, that would be such a cool, I don't know, there may be a movie of it. I don't know, but that would be a cool movie to watch. I would watch it. Yeah. So and we need to hold people like that in high regard. That was number nine. The last one piggybacks on nine called to lose our lives for Christ. Paul writes, receive him, Epaphroditus, then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. So basically what Paul's getting at there. BDK is, put a link to the book, by the way. Oh, awesome. Amazon link. Put it, that up when it, it uh Yeah, it's there. Yeah. Make sure y'all check that out. It's really good stuff. She's actually still alive. She's in her 70s. Yeah. Might be a good interview. <laughs> We're assuming she's accessible, but um yeah. if she's on Instagram, I'll find her. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so Epaphroditus, evidently on his way to Rome bringing that, that financial gift for Paul from the Philippians on his way to Rome. He got really sick, but he made it there. He was able to bring in person to, the, to Paul what the Philippians wished they could bring in person, um, but they couldn't. But he risked his life. He could have, like, no one would have faulted him if he just, like, stopped, but he kept on going. 
at the risk of his own life. And so, yeah, AJ says, we lost our lives the day we were born again. Yeah, and Paul um, also talks about how he dies daily, right? We die daily. We're called to do that because um, that old man tries to rise up in us, that, that flesh. And so Paul also writes in Romans chapter 12 that we need to be living sacrifices for God. Um, there were a lot of things that I wanted to put up on this last point. Basically <laughs> showing some, uh, doing a compare and contrast of that line, like losing your life for Christ. Um, comparing and contrasting those from Matthew 16, Mark 9, Luke 17, and John 12. So those lines from the Gospels, there's some really cool uh, contrasts in those where they're hitting on little different nuanced parts. Um of what it looks like to lose our life for Christ. One of the ones in Luke, I'll, I'll put this in there. Luke, in Luke 17, Jesus is kind of doing some eschatology stuff. And I do want to put this up there. It says, it, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. This is eschatology stuff. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who's on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who's in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in bed. One will be taken, the other left. All right. But it's, uh, it's interesting what Jesus says there when he says, uh, remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. That's such an interesting pairing. Mm -hmm. What did Lot's wife look back at? Her home. What was she trying to keep? Her old life. Right which were her possessions. Yeah. That word life is also soul. And it's interesting how she's, in a sense, Jesus is saying that Lot's wife's soul was tied up into her things, in a sense. She was willing to let her physical body die so she could keep her soul, her life, which was tied up in her stuff. And in trying to do so, she lost all. Hmm. Not even one as rich does his life consist of his possessions, right? Her possessions had possessed her. Mm -hmm. And so when we die, as AJ was talking about, um, we died the day and we were born again. Remember, we have a treasure in heaven, lasting possessions that neither moth nor rust can destroy. So that's why we're supposed to have our treasure to really seek the things above where Christ is, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And if we have, then we've lost all of this world. We'll get to a place like Paul uh, in Philippians chapter 3, where he says, 
Like I've lost all for the sake of Christ. In fact, it's all rubbish. It's all garbage compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, mm -hmm. right? And if you've already lost everything, then you'll live like you got nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. You'll live with much more courage, much more love, much more willingness to risk and um, to lay down your life for the gospel, yeah. just like our Savior Jesus did.